Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then mm-hmm. a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues. Justin, so good to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Bob. My my pleasure, I believe. Yeah. Okay, you have a new single, Living for Love. Tell me how that came to be. Well, I sit down and play the guitar, you know, and these things jump out of the guitar. I, I've got a, a beautiful... Um, 1961 Gibson J200 and I I sat down one night and um it's in January this year and the the song just popped out so I I had 80% of it within a few minutes and then I woke up the next morning played it again and I thought oh this is really nice so I I finished the rest and then I went down to um my uh, the studio that uh, I use in Genoa, which is not far from here, and recorded it, and um, I really love it. You know, I'm still I'm still loving it now. And he released it two two weeks ago, but and I've been doing it on stage on a UK tour, and I'm I'm thinking when when I do the gig, and I think, um, well, I wonder if I'll still like it after singing it every night. And then I, I came back and put it on, and I thought. Oh, it's great. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. That's how it happens. I, I, you know, you're asking me, how, how do these, how does it, how, I don't know. Just, I just pick up a plectrum and a guitar and these things. I'm a songwriter. These happen. Okay, let's talk about a few things. You talk about your J200. Are you a gearhead? Do you have a lot of guitars, recording equipment? I have some nice things. Yeah, I'm, I'm discriminating. So I don't have a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I have... Um, a lovely Martin D28 that I've had since the 60s. And that's an interesting story how I got that guitar, but that's another thing. No, no, no. Tell me the story of how you got the D28. Okay, so do you you know D28s, Martin D28? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So it's a 1957 D28, 
And when in the 60s, there used to be, when we first went to America, there used to be maybe five or six bands on the, on the bill. And uh, we were never top of the bill, but one day we got to be headlining. But um, in the early years, we weren't. So you get five or six bands and even a light show, kind of psychedelic light show on the bill. And there was at that time these young uh, uh, lads, I have to say men, because they were boys. Yes, they were boys. So boys who used to travel around America and look for really beautiful guitars because you could do that then in the 60s they hadn't been found or they were in um it's a hard word for british people to say but pawn shops p-a-w-n or people's homes or little music shops tucked away in places and these boys would know these guitars how beautiful they were and they only chose really the best ones and when we would come off stage each there's only one guitar in the Moody Blues, that's me. But some some groups would have two or three guitar players. And when you walked off stage at these gigs, you were just about to be paid. And you'd walk past about six beautiful guitars that these boys had in the van, and they'd line them up as you came off stage on your way to the dressing room or whatever they called the dressing room, <laughs> you know, in those days. And you'd and I looked at some. I looked at this D twenty eight, and I thought, "Oh, that that is really looks so sweet, you know." And I picked it up, and I, and it was the nicest acoustic guitar I've ever played, and it still is to this day. So that's how I came by a few of these guitars in the sixties. That's how it used to happen. But that's how that one happened. Okay, when it comes to guitar, certainly D28 is the acoustic standard. Uh, but certainly with Gibsons, everyone, even of the same model, will sound different. Have you found that with your guitars? Absolutely. But um, I, I met the guys who made my, my 335, my red Gibson 335, was made in 1963. I, I had... I actually had a 335 brand new in 63, but I couldn't afford to keep it. Then in the Moody's, I've been in the Moody's for about a year and I had enough money to put a deposit down on another 335. So I found the prep, my present 335. And when I was able to go to the US and visit Kalamazoo in Michigan, I just turned up and they were like, hey, Justin, you know, you know I've seen <laughs> pictures of your 335 and the serial number. And um, I met the guys who made it. And they said, we, because we've seen your guitar in pictures on, 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 video, on the, the TV and kind of stuff like that, we know your guitar and we remember it because there wasn't that. We remember those kind of things. It has a big, this factory, factory Bigsby and two pieces of Mother of Pearl where the stop tailpiece were. So they, they remembered it. And they said that the next one on the line didn't have what mine had. They knew that, that when they take them off the line, they know that one's nice and one's like, eh, you know, one's fabulous and one's like, mm, ah, doesn't quite come together. So uh, that's, that's the way instruments are, isn't it? Okay, in terms of electrics, you have the 335 that's a semi-hollow body. Do you have any other electrics that you favor? 
I've got my Telecaster from, um, that's uh, that's what I bought when I first joined the Moody's. So that'd be 65, 66, 65. And then um, I've got a Tom Anderson that is beautiful. I've got a Parker that uh, is really, uh, a, a really good for recording. You plug it straight in direct into the desk, got a beautiful sound. That's about it. Okay, you said you're in Genoa. I know you cut the record in Italy. Are you living full-time in Genoa, and why Genoa? Uh, I'm not living in Genoa, no. I'm down the road. Uh, okay, you're, li you're living <laughs> I in... I go to Genoa to record. You're living in Italy. What inspired you to live in Italy? No, I, I, I don't live in Italy. I live just across the border, in the, across the French border. Well, let me ask it a different way. What inspired you to live in that area as opposed to the UK? I had a holiday home in this part of the world in the 80s. And I was coming back here and then I got to know musicians along the, the Côte d'Azur, along the Riviera coast from sort of Marseille through to Livorno in Italy and there was a lot of English musicians in the 80s and early 90s who were playing with Italian rock stars or, or French rock stars who all wanted English kind of guitar players and musicians because English players got rock and roll and I'm not sure that the Italians and the French did. But anyway, the Italian and the French artists wanted really English guitar players because they had a different kind of background, a cultural background, I think, the English, with, with rock and roll music, with the three chords. And um, so I met a lot of people, musicians along this coast recording, and they became really friends, families, and, um, and I became part of that uh, group and community and that led me to italy and um to record there i can't i can't say i can actually afford to go and record in london because it's like joke money but where do you live i live in los angeles uh, we could talk about today's economic world uh, and what's going on in the uk but uh let, let's stay with the money you know you Wait, so could you could you afford to go and rent a studio in la now I will tell you, I will tell you like a week LA since it's a hotbed of the music industry and universal music is located here. There are many home studios and the home studios are so good that the only reason someone goes to a big studio is to cut basics to get a certain drum sound or something. So Many times you can go to a big studio for a day or two, and except for a couple of elite studios, the prices have actually gone down. So as far as the old days, you know, locking out a studio for six weeks, um, nobody does that anymore. So could someone afford the $1,000 to $2,500 to record one or two days in a big studio? If they are a major label artist, yes. If they're in putting out the records independently, they will do their best not to do that, but maybe one day. But that begs the question of money. You had great success 50 years ago in a band with multiple members when the royalties were low. So how is your financial situation today? We, we didn't, multiple members, what does that mean? 
I, I wish but I, I had draft multiple a, members. Uh, no, no. When you have the songwriting in your group, uh, yeah. there were different people who wrote different songs. Some acts, the same person wrote all 10 songs. As we know, most of the money is in the songwriting unless you have an overall deal where you mix the uh, recording revenue in, the publishing will pay from minute one. Some people own it. Some people don't own it. Some people sold it. Record royalties are lower. They have to split five ways. Uh, when you go on the road, the money has to be split. So it's different from being a solo artist who owns all the songs. Never mind 50 years ago, royalty rates were lower. And your question is? Well, now that it's 50 years later, uh, how good is the income stream from the Moody's? I'm doing okay. Uh, I've, I've spent my life on the road as well. Okay, could so, you... Um, I'm, do, I'm doing all right, thanks. Okay, and you... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, can, I can afford... I can afford to speak to you, Bob. Okay, and uh, do you still own your own publishing? Um, I own the. Um, I never did own the copyrights of my early material. And who who did own it? Ownership of the copyrights. Um, the uh, TRO. Okay, and but the the so you're still getting the songwriting, uh, the fifty percent for writing the songs. Some people sell those royalty streams. Do you still own yours? I'm I'm doing okay. Okay, so I'm, let's go. I'm doing good, thanks. Okay, let's go back to the song. Yeah. You talked about you seeing the guitar. You come up with the sound. Is that normally how you write on inspiration, or is it sometimes a more labored process? Um, well, that that's a good question. I'm I'm not sure that I, I um, you, you know, if we. If we if songwriters sat around and waited for inspiration, I think uh, be waiting a long time. I, I I find that I if I put my mind to it, if I if I decide to sit if I decide to write a song, and uh, I can I can do it. Now there was much more pressure in the early days of the band because the, with the first with the albums of the Moody's, there was always, oh, well, there was always the thing where, oh, well, Justin will have something because he, 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 I always had stuff ready. You know, I'm the son of two teachers, and I, I always had my stuff ready. So I would never. Um, studio time was really precious to me. So um, if there was a studio, if there was a session happening on the Saturday, on the Friday night, I would have something and be ready to go and the other and that was great the others knew that oh justin will have something and so we could kick i could kick the ball down the pitch and that was that was great but there was a lot of pressure to do that because the the records kept coming so i had to just move on quickly from one to the other now i have more time about it because i i can i'm still um how can i put it i i'm i'm still want to be true to my goal goals of making music and re and playing music live so i can i can take my time over that i'm offered a lot of work on the road which uh, most of it i i say yeah that's great and i can be choose what i do and when i write it 
and and do it as a pleasure, not as a pressure. Okay, you talked about seeing the J two hundred picking it up. When you were not on the road, do you play the guitar every day? And how often do you just pick it up and get inspired? Ah, you see, you you keep using this word inspired. You know, if we, like I said, we sat around waiting to be inspired, we, oh, you wouldn't do much. So, uh, well, maybe you would, but, uh, you know, looking out, looking out the window, waiting for some, or we're looking for a girl to come by and think, oh, that's nice. Uh, but um, I find it's, it, you have to put your mind to it. I can't, can't remember what you're saying about my guitars. What do you say about this? Well, I, I guess I guess it sounded like with the new song yeah. that you were yes. just strumming and something came to you. Uh, yeah, that's how it usually works. I enjoy playing, so uh, then stuff just comes. Stuff just comes out. And in this particular song, you've talked about it being optimistic, hearkening back to an era that was more optimistic. Is that true? Can you amplify that? Um, I think I was lucky enough to be in a generation that didn't have the weight of constant news bombarding them because there wasn't a place to, uh, you know, I hardly listened to the radio, but, so, but I, me and my brother used to listen to Radio Luxembourg and we had about three or four records, and my brother's friend had three or four, and my friend had... Th then you could have a whole night's entertainment with about 12 records. But I come from a time when the the music was particularly wonderful. Now, mu music is, is great today. I would n uh, There are kids out there falling in love right now to the music that's just being made at this moment, and they'll remember that all their lives. And it was a time for, for me when I knew that I could get a job. I was in, in a loving family with my brother and my sister. And um, we, it was a time of optimism and a, and a, and a commitment that, you'd, that another war like my parents had gone through would never happen again. So it was a safe, secure, optimistic world. And in that world, there was wonderful music that was our lives. And we were living for love. I was living for love and girls and boys around us. And I had a, I had a wonderful school. Uh, and I, I lived not in luxury, but I lived in the English countryside, which is the most beautiful. And, uh, you know, you only realize these things later, don't you, Bob? But Absolutely. now I realize that so it was, it was, it was really good. You know, it was kind of funny. I was laughing all the time and I, I was living for love and that's it. And if, if we were able to do that now, I, I think the world would be a better place. I, I'm for bringing love back. That's what I'm for. <laughs> I'm not against anything. I'm just for stuff. Okay. What did your parents do for a living in the countryside? They were, well, we lived in, in Swindon, which is set in the West Country of England. It's in the Vale of the White Horse. 
Um, my parents uh, both taught in different schools. My father taught in quite a rough school. He taught, when I was a small boy, he taught Latin. It was, but he taught Latin, English, and um, what was quaintly called divinity in those days. And my mother taught uh, domestic science, and she taught in a girls' school. My father taught in a boys' school. My mother's taught in a girls' school. I was lucky enough to pass the 11 pros along with my brother the same, and uh, we went to what, the, what was known as a grammar school. If you passed this exam when you were 11, you went to a better class of school. It was a state exam. It wasn't a, you didn't have to pay anything for it, but that's the way it was then. And um, I, my brother and I went to a beautiful school. Yeah, but my par- like I say, my parents English English literature, grammar, um, Latin disappeared after you know in the, like nineteen fifty five. But um, then my mother domestic science. And you reference your brother and your sister. Where are you in the family? Oldest, middle, youngest? Well, I, I my brother died young, um, but he was in the Royal Navy and. Um, so we lost him. He was only 41 when he passed. But I'm the second son, and my sister is uh, quite a few years younger than me, eight or nine years younger than me. And what kind of kid were you growing up? Were you the type who played sports and had a lot of friends, or were you more introverted? It, maybe every child is introverted. Um, um what was I like? I, I don't know. I, I always had a lot of friends. I always had a lot of fun, laughs. Um, fought a lot with my brother, of course, you know, and um, that's the way brothers are, um, uh, are, jumping on each other and trying to get the better of each other. My brother only, was only about 18 months older than me, so we were kind of the same. So we were punching each other all the time. Um, but... Um, I don't know what child or what kind of child I was, really, but I know that I loved music. I come from a family with a very strong faith, and and uh, so I loved the music of the uh, English hymnal or hymns ancient and modern. was was a was a hymn book in the Anglican Church, and I loved those. We used to sing them in 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 assembly every morning. Every morning in school, you'd have an assembly. And you'd sing those, and I'd sing them at church. And I got to know them, and I loved those melodies and the the, the things in in hymns, ancient and modern. So that it's only about four or five, and I can one of my earliest memories is um, loving this music and these uh, and and the hymns. So uh, that's that's what I grew up with. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What point did you start playing a musical instrument? Oh, I, 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 my parents knew that I loved music, so they uh, sent me for like one or two piano lessons. I knew that wasn't going to work. I couldn't get the mathematics. I was never good at mathematics, uh, but so um, I couldn't get the mathematics of music. It was beyond me, or just too difficult. I was too lazy, but I I could kind of play. My my grandfather had a piano. Most houses after the war had a piano. They were subsidised for, um, with the purpose of get, uh, making us do home entertainment. You know, I think that was the post-war government's idea, of, um, and it was a good idea. So most families would have a piano that cost very very little. And my grandfather would very kindly just say, oh, go in the front room and bash on the piano. You know, I don't care. So uh, I was able to do that. Um, But I knew that I wanted a guitar. So I pestered and pestered my parents when I was about eight. And they didn't buy me a guitar. They bought me a ukulele that didn't cost very much. So I I could play the ukulele. I knew how to play the ukulele straight off. It's kind of easy. Ding, 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 ding. I don't know whether you're a player, but that's how it's tuned. And um, the spacing is the same as the top four strings of a guitar. So it's like, yeah, okay, right, I can play that. So I'm going to pester you some more for a guitar. So I got a guitar when I was 10. And then I was forming groups. Okay, what era was that in popular music? What was on the radio when you were forming groups? 
Buddy Holly? Well, in fact, I, but Buddy died what fifty nine February fifty nine, but in in England and in Great Britain, it's hard to um, explain how it's it's hard to convey how big Buddy uh, what what a huge artist Buddy Holly was and a huge influence to people. So Buddy Holly, the Everly Brothers, thank goodness in in Great Britain we had Cliff in the Shadows, who I loved then and I love them now. To today, and then of course everything changed. But I was in 1963, and I was in London in 1964. I was a professional musician then, because um, I, I got a job when I was about 17, playing guitar for a rock and roll singer. But yeah, so Buddy Holly, the Everlys. I was never an Elvis guy, you know. I, I my girlfriends always loved Elvis, but it was Buddy for me all the way. And a lot of English rock and roll heroes as well. Yeah. So, needless to say, in the U.S., when the Beatles broke, really, in January 64, it changed everything. I could delineate the ways, but I won't. They broke earlier, 62, in uh, the U.K. To what degree did the Beatles change the game? And what it, were you inspired? Were you a fan? Huh? You use that word again. Okay. You want to be inspired, don't you, Bob? You want the secret of how to be inspired. No, there are no secrets, actually. I think you can only open your mind, take a shower, go out and exercise. The inspiration might happen. But if you're trying to trick insp- inspiration, can't do it. Um. Yeah, okay. Um. So, the Beatles. I remember in my hometown of Swindon hearing Love Me Do on the radio. And I walked out of my house in Swindon, and I I remember this as clear as anything. I walked down the street after hearing Love Me Do, and and I knew my life was going to be different. Anybody, any kid of that era, particularly a, 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 a little Herbert like me, playing guitar, would know that something has happened. Something has changed the, the, in the in the way the Beatles made that record, and um, it was monumental. You know that, uh, yeah. And and I wasn't disappointed. There's a strange thing also. I remember that just after "Love Me Do," there was a guy on the radio. Uh, it was quite a, a nice old gentleman, but he was like in charge of what people thought about music. It was on the BBC, and. Um, he, he was on lots of programs. They'd always wheel him in when they wanted to know something about music or discuss music or anything like that. And so after we, as young people, we discovered the, the Beatles and they discovered us, I saw this man on the, on the, on the television at my girlfriend's house and he, and he was saying, my, this, you know, like this, the Beatles will never last. It, it, you know, I give them like a few weeks. This time next year, they'll be gone. And I remember thinking, you arsehole. You arsehole. You've just, you're, you're, that's it. There's no point in listening to you anymore because we all knew different. And so what, we didn't need to tell us what we were listening to because it, it was so obvious. It was just brilliant. 
Your parents were educators. How did you, they feel about you becoming a professional musician as opposed to going to university? Well, my parents were very enlightened people, almost maybe you'd say new age kind of um, people, and very very enlightened. And they were their idea was that we should do what we wanted to do. And the of course, because they were teachers, they wanted all of us to get um, our school qualifications, so which they were called O levels. General Certificates of Education and a grammar school. So um, as long as I got my five O-levels, they were uh, they were good with what I wanted to do. So I got my five O-levels and said, you can do what you want. I worked in an office for about three months, but I was answering ads in the Melody Maker all the time. That's how I got my first gig. And who was that with and how did you work your way to Marty Wilde? Well, I was always playing in groups in Swindon ever since I was, like I said, about 10 or 11 years old because there were lots of groups at school. Swindon is a very lively music scene, still is to this day, very vibrant and uh, um, lots of places to play. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, so I answered an ad. I was answering ads in the Melody Maker for jobs. It used to have a job section, situations vacant. And um, so I um, fired off a lot of replies to ads, very rarely got uh, any replies. Some of them were from the military, because you, you, you didn't know that they were going to be from the military. Well, welcome to the 4th Battalion, um, the Fusiliers. Uh, I would like to come up and be... But, sometime, but this one time... I got a reply. I think it. I think the thing it said, um, named artist seeks guitar player, and I answered it. And I got. An, I got a reply. And I went up to a house. I went up on the train to a house in East London, a nice part of East London, uh, called Blackheath. And uh, Marty Wilde opened the door, and it was like, whoa, that's Marty. I knew who it was. And I did a little audition, and I got the job. That was it. How long did you work for Marty, and were you content, or were you saying, well, I'm doing this now, but there's something bigger for me personally? Every teenager thinks, even the Moody Blues, I think every young person thinks, I'm doing this now, but maybe there's something else. I I still do it now. I think I'm doing this now with Bob. Maybe there's something else, though. You know, maybe this is going to lead to something. <laughs> Just, I, 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 that, that's facetious. I don't mean that. But um, there's always something. But my, in, in truth, I learned so much from Marty. He was my hero, and uh, he still is my hero to this day. And he taught me some valuable things, really. He was writing his own material, and uh, he really said that to survive in this business, you have to create an identity. And that means writing your own material. Just cover versions is never going to do it for you. And uh, so I started uh, writing right then. And But I, I knew also that Marty and Joyce, because we were like a little trio, and, Mar- and Marty's wife, Joyce, has a gorgeous voice. Um, she was one of a, um, a group of girls called the Vernon Girls, Vernon's Girls in Liverpool that s- some English people would know about and remember fondly. 
And, um, but they, they didn't need me. They didn't need me. And uh, so I started writing and um, kind of saw myself as a bit of a songwriter. And I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to be. That's, that's, I've got a lot of songs, you know, here, make, made demos and stuff. And that's also how I got to the Moody Blues with my own songs, my own demos. Can you tell us about how you switched from Marty to the Moody Blues? Well, I did. I did nothing for uh, for quite a, for a few months, you know, uh, and I, I wasn't sure what kind of thing that I I was wanted to do really. So I I did a few folk clubs and things. I had a a nice twelve string acoustic guitar, and. Um, I sent off to another advertisement in the Melody Maker situations vacant, and it was for because I knew somebody in Eric Burden's office, and he was looking for another guitar player. And I thought, oh, maybe you know, it's like Eric's life is changing. I'll send him some of my songs. So I sent him up my demos. I never heard anything from Eric except about three years later when he said, hey, Justin, I sent your stuff to Mike. But um, he, he gave my stuff to um, Mike Pinder of the Moody Blues. And that it, uh, uh, yeah, and it, Mike liked it and Mike, um, Mike called me one day. And, uh, and I came up to London, met Mike, and we, we thought, great, Mike wants to write, it wants to move the Moody's into a, a different kind of space away from cover versions. And um, it seemed like a good fit. And none of us had anything. I, in fact, I had more than anybody else because I had an amplifier. I had a Vox AC30 amplifier. So I was well ahead, you know. Okay, the Moody's had had a hit with Denny Lane, who'd left the group. And you're saying when he left, they still, to what situation were they in? And were you worried about joining a sinking ship? Oh, that's the, that's, that's rather horrid, Bob. Say that again. I was, was I worried about joining a sinking ship? Well, you know, this is a, this, when you have a career um, as a musician, unlike being a business person, you get one shot. Okay, so people are always evaluating opportunities. So I wasn't there. You're the only person who was there. In the back of your mind, you might have said, well, these guys had a hit under this name. Maybe there's not as big a future as something else. Or did it just feel right and said, okay, I'm going to play this out? Oh, I wish there was a plan to everything. I, w I wish I could give give you i wish i could tell you there was a plan to the, the whole thing uh there wasn't nobody had anything Den denny had left yes the group was put together by um, a group of money men who put people from different gr groups together around denny cordell who had this the song go now which was a wonderful song by bertie banks uh, sung by bessie banks actually the original record and uh, everybody knew it was great. And the the um, D Denny, it, it had gone up and down, and then Denny left, and Clint Warwick left, the original bass player as well, left the group. And they were both, um, I, I think they were both actually good at rhythm and blues, those rhythm and blues kind of cover. Ridelli had the perfect voice for that. 
like I said before, Mike wanted to just change things and move forward. And I think Graham did as well in the band. And um, that's why, you, you know, to, to come back to your, your idea of, of, of why, nobody had anything. Like I said, I had a Vox AC Thamp. Uh, so what, what's the point of, it's like having a philosophy of life doesn't really matter when you're just in a van looking to earn the price of gas at a, at a, at a, doing a gig. You, you can have all the philosophy and about life and what you want to be and as much as you like, but you're just sitting in a van. You're allowed to have as many opinions as you want. It only matters later when you've kind of got stuff. So, um, you know what? There was a whole lot of nothing for us, for, for all of us. So I don't think there was any ship to kind of sink in that way. What we did have was was an agent, but sh- but there's some some truth in what you say, or in, you remind me now, really, because there was a promoter that was going to give us like half a dozen gigs or something. So uh, So that was good. Okay, you're with the band, they record one of your songs, you have a mild hit, and then you start doing Days of Future Past. Uh, There's a lot of history written. What is the truth about how that album came together? Well, maybe it depends who you are and what, uh, you know, everybody has a different perspective. I'm sure the people behind your curtains there, if you open the curtains and there was something happened outside, a few other people from looking from different um, uh, houses would have a different idea of what happened. But I, I can tell you what I, what happened to me and what, what happened around me was that um, there was, we actually had a debt to Decca and Decca were a wonderful recording company run by elderly gentlemen and with the second largest classical catalog in the world. Uh, Deutsche Grammophon had the biggest, but Decca, as you probably know, still to this day has a magnificent classical catalogue. And they also made radar systems and they had a consumer division. And we made a couple of records for them and um, Gus Dudgeon actually was engineer on Fly Me High, which I think was the song you referenced before. But... but, um, that was the one that only, but we recorded quite a few songs before Days of Future Past, but nobody kind of noticed. But, and then Tony Clark was assigned to us as a, a man called Tony Clark, a record producer, as a in-house producer for Decca. And they kind of had a call on us because we owed them some money. We had a debt to them. And they approached us. Uh, a lovely man called Hugh Mendel, one of the elderly gentlemen, um, elegant elderly gentlemen at Decca, and proposed that we would make um, a demonstration record to demonstrate that stereo could be as interesting for rock and roll as classical music, because, like I said, they had the biggest classical catalogue, second biggest classical catalogue, and they had a consumer division, which meant that they had record... um, you know, the radiograms and stuff. And they were trying to sell stereo units and they wanted that they, they had quite a lot of rock and roll art. Well, they had the stones actually, you know, and some other really nice, nice um, uh, pop and rock acts. 
and um, they had us. <laughs> so they, they Hugh Mendel proposed this idea of making a demonstration record to demonstrate stereo could be as interesting for rock and roll as it was for classical music. And then they assigned, so we said, yes, yeah, sure. And we'd already started writing, Nights was al actually already recorded and re we recorded Nights in White Saturn for the BBC about um, six months before it was ever recorded for Days of Future Past. But we were doing a, a, a stage show that included some of these songs. There was a, a song called Another Morning um, that we were doing, a, one of Ray's songs, and a song called Dawn is a Feeling that Mike asked me to sing. And I, I loved it. It was such a lovely song. And we were doing this stuff on stage. And then they assigned another independent um, product man called Michael, Michael Dacobarty, who's a lovely man, very posh, public school. And um, he really ha had this idea of trying to make it some kind of concept. And the concept that they proposed was that we should make a kind of rock version of Dvorak to juxtaposition against the real Dvorak. And they already had Peter Knight, one of the greatest romantic string arrangers in the world, under contract to them. They thought Peter Knight could, could do it. If we could do some rock versions of stuff from the New World Symphony and then Peter Knight would play the New World Symphony and we'd see that, oh, rock and roll, that's yeah, quite nice in stereo, going to classical. And Peter Knight came to see us at the 100 Club in Oxford Street before this project was started. And I remember him saying, I don't think you boys are ever going to get the rock version of Dvorak together, but your stuff is great. What about if we did it the other way round? And Hugh Mendel and Michael Dacre Barclay kind of went along with this idea. And it was a sort of secret from the chairman and the board at Decca because they were expecting a rock version of Dvorak. But there was Hugh Mendel and Michael Dacre Barclay saying that we could have a couple of days studio time to put our stuff down and Peter Knight would sketch out orchestral arrangements based on our themes. And that's what we did. We recorded our songs, about 10 songs, you know, in a, in a day or so, a couple of days. And then at the, in the weekend in the studio, Peter Knight came in with the orchestra that didn't have a name. I think somebody in our band thought up the name, the Festival Orchestra, because it sounded good. There isn't a Festival Orchestra. It just sounds nice. But um, you know how that goes, that kind of stuff. And um, that's, they, they recorded the themes of Days of Future Past. He did all his bits. I was the only one that came to the studio. I wasn't allowed in the control room because these were the days when you weren't invited into the control room. The engineer had a white lab coat. The tape operator had a brown lab coat, a Decker in 1967. And um, they played it back. They, they mixed it all together, segued between our bits and the orchestra bits. And um, they 
played it back to us. They invited us round to the studio, and not into the control room, but down on the studio floor. They played it back on a couple of big Tannoy speakers. And we thought, oh, that's great. Nice, it's good stereo demonstration record. Nobody will ever hear it, but it's kind of nice. And that was that. And then Nights in White Satin came out to a lot of resistance because a lot of people didn't want it. We didn't know. We didn't. Uh, I can't say that we were fully, it was anything to do with us. We didn't have any power or any influence. It's just these things happened and Nights came out. And um, there was another interesting thing that happened. If, uh, can I ramble on a bit more? Absolutely. Okay. So, so night. So, Days of Future Past came out. I think it was November 1967. It eventually came out, and um, nights had, had had come out. Some people just in the in the promo department thought you'll never. There was a lot of resistance to it. It wasn't our idea to put nights out. It was just. I think it was Hugh Mendel, who. who um, one of the lovely gentlemen from Decca who really believed in it. But of course, the pluggers all said, oh, it's four minutes long. It's like slow. No, you never get it on the radio. And they were right. We didn't. But we came, there was a song festival down in the south of France in Cannes called Midem. And it was in the days when song festivals used to actually play something. They used to have artists on. And it was about songs. And uh, then now it's about doing business, you know, with uh, stuff around the world. And um, we we went down to Medem in January 1968. And we, we were part of the live show. And the Supremes were due to um, fly in and play live. Now, there was union rules that you could only go on TV if you played live, not miming. Now, everybody else except... Us and Long John Baudry were miming. We were actually playing live. The Supremes didn't turn up. Their flight was late. They didn't turn up in time to do the live Eurovision thing on um, for Medem across Europe. We went on, played a couple of songs and played nights. The next day in, in France, it was like, whoa, what what's happened? C'est extra, le moody blues, fantastique. You know, and um, suddenly th this whole journey was born with Nights in White Satin. It was remarkable. Started here in France. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. 
I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In America, the first go-round, Tuesday afternoon was bigger. Tuesday afternoon was a hit. How did you write uh, both Tuesday afternoon and Nights in White Sun? How did I write them? Yes. Well, Tuesday afternoon was put out as a single by London Records in um, in the US because clearly, like the rest of the promo people, they didn't think Nights had had any legs at all. So, um, but Tuesday afternoon, kind of two and a half minutes, bang, you know, it's over. And um, so, Tuesday afternoon, um, once Hugh Mendel and Michael Dacre Barclay, Graham, our drummer, and all of us in the group had, had decided on this conspiracy of, of doing our own stuff and Peter Knight. And I, and, and I thought, you know, we, we knew it was going to be like the story of a day in the life of one guy. And so I, I, I said a couple of days before the session, I'm, I bags the afternoon. Ray had the morning, John had lunchtime, Mike had dawn, you know, a sunset, uh, and I had nights. It just all seemed to kind of fit together. You know, hang on a minute, you've got, I, I, we've been doing dawn and we've been doing Ray's song another morning and I've got nights. It's, it's like a perfect kind of thing. So, um, I said, I want the afternoon. It's just a couple of days before we read. So I just went down to my parents' place in Wiltshire. I got my 12-string guitar out, but my guitar out, and quite difficult to play that old 12-string, and um, sat, in a, sat in a field, smoked a joint, and um, Tuesday afternoon. Apologies to the um, the the, uh, the police. <laughs> it's a bit late, busting me 60 years yeah, later. Absolutely. Yeah. So Days of Future Past is an interesting album, 
It became more successful as time went on. The records became hits on the chart once again. What was the thought, now that the album was done, was it viewed as a success in the band, and what was the inspiration? How did you decide to move forward in search of the lost chord? Well, that's assuming that we could we were uh, had enough influence to move these things forward but it we were uh like i said before we we didn't have anything so um it wasn't we'd like to have done a lot of things but uh I could, there, there was no plan but i think that decker had seen that days of future past there was something there hugh mendel was loved it forever you know i i loved him as a as a as a man as an elderly man and he'll be in my memory as the sweetest person that i ever knew from that period and he stuck with it he stuck with it to against the board of decker and it started to be picked up by fm radio in america days of future past and particularly of course tuesday afternoon and nights and another morning and all of these kind of things and they started to get on the radio fm radio was needed things that were recorded well in stereo that sadly abbey road the studio just down the road from broaders gardens where the decker studio was were recording things and i i've got no idea why george martin let this go but you had drums on the left vocals on the right it, it was the nuts that kind of stereo whereas everything at decca was done in a kind of cinematic stereo uh, spread which just sounded beautiful when fm radio came along and drums on the left vocals on the right didn't sound that great it's good in mono but not in stereo so um it just started to break and then london records was, were telling the elderly gentleman in England, you know, there's something happening here. And uh, then they asked us to go back in the studio and, you know, well, do whatever you want. Just give us some more songs kind of thing. That was Decker's attitude. And the chairman of Decker came to visit us, I think on about our third or fourth album. And he came down and he never came to the studio. He just was in this lovely office up on the Albert Embankment in London. Uh, but he came to the studio and all the staff were like, whoa, it's Sir Edward Lewis. And he and he came into us, stoned Herbert, standing, lying around in the studio. And he said, I don't know what you boys are doing, but people seem to love it. So just carry on. And um, <laughs> we, we, had, we had studio time, which was uh, like a gold treasure. So to what degree was the Mellotron a leap forward for the band? Because certainly the Mellotron was used on Strawberry Fields Forever, but the Moody Blues were seen as the biggest users of the Mellotron. Well, that's uh, th well, thank you for that, because uh, it's uh, an, an interest. It uh, enables me to point out that Mike Pinder actually worked for the company Mellotronics that in had invented this instrument called the Mellotron. The Mellotron was really a sound effects instrument, really made for radio. So it had it was made up of sounds. You press the key, and there was the sound of a sort of a cockerel in the morning and a train rushing through a tunnel and springs going boing and dogs barking. And that was 80% of what the Mellotron was about. But there was, um, 
a little bits of it that were kind of orchestral strings and a kind of organy and uh, if you mike decided that he was we we went up to this place club in the midlands he and i and somebody else in the band i don't know who it was and we bought this old mellotron that they had stuck in a corner for about 20 pounds and we brought it back to london mike fiddled with it and he duplicated all the parts that sounded orchestral so it was a double manual and then he, he he could roll his fingers over the Mellotron and it gave this orchestral sound. And to get back to your point, and sorry for rambling, Bob, but the it made my songs work. The, that orchestral sound, instead of Vox Continental organ or piano or something like that, this the Mellotron sound made the, the, the songs work. That and the voices and the Decca echoes that um, they had at the time, were echo chambers, were, made it work. Okay, In, on the album In Search of the Lost Chord, you'd had the two most successful tracks on Days of Future Past, but mm -hmm. you didn't have the majority of tracks by a long shot on In Search of the Lost Card. Was that just democracy? Were you happy about that? What went on there? Oh, I don't think it was just democracy. You know, we had a couple of songs each. Everybody had their go. And that was that's what it was like in a group. You know, it's um everybody has the same kind of say. Everybody's voice is just as valid as somebody else's. I wish Mike had, had been given more because he was just a superb writer and a great guitar player as well as a good keyboard player. But th that was the just uh, that's only in hindsight now. Okay. The world was shifting and the Moody Blues were part of it where on a couple of these next albums, there was not some big hit like Tuesday Afternoon, but the albums were embraced strongly. What was the view like from within the band? Well, I don't think we were ever looking to have uh, a, hit, hit, a hit single. I think I might have been after Nights, and I, we recorded a couple of things, but they weren't released until maybe 10 years later. But um, I think we were just happy with this. Hey, FM radio, we're good. We've been asked to America by Bill Graham to come over for, he offered us a couple of gigs and we stayed and we were supporting lots of other people. We were kind of uh, content with what we were. We weren't part of any kind of trend or fashion and Decca weren't pressing us to get a hit single. They liked the albums and the LP format. They liked their stereo spread and their cinematic kind of, idea of how recording should be so the, i don't think we were worried about that no in search of the lost chord has a huge cult following how does on the threshold of a dream get made oh i think threshold of a dream was the happiest and the nicest and the most beautiful thing because i think there was a tension there that we didn't know it was going to work days of future past it's like, whoa, actually, people have heard it. We never thought anybody would ever hear it, but people heard it and liked it. 
Then we had to go back and make In Search of the Lost Chord. That's when the record companies, you know, were like, um, you, you, you have got to come up with something. So um, I, I loved In Search of the Lost Chord. And Threshold of a Dream was the first time that we ever felt comfortable. Actually, people really kind of like what we're doing. And um, it was the loveliest of album. And we'd found Phil Travers, the cover of the sleeve artist, and he was a big influence as well. You know, we'd, we'd, he'd start to paint halfway through the album. He'd come into the control room and listen to it and sketch out ideas. And uh, it was all one. It, it was all one kind of family of uh, creating stuff that was that was very very nice. And I think it all came together on the threshold of a dream. It's a love. It's a lovely album, and it's my favourite. And on Threshold of a Dream, there was not only was it a gatefold cover, there was a huge multi-page insert of the lyrics. Now, did you have to fight with the label or did, and that you wanted this extensive package or did they charge it to you? What went on there? Um, well, you clearly you clearly know know about that. <laughs> Otherwise you wouldn't have phrased it the way you did, maybe, Bob. But um Yes, it was an expensive thing that we were doing, and uh, to 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 request that Decker put that gatefold and a book of lyrics in it as well, with, with all designed by Phil Travers. So um, I can't say there was conflict with the with the, uh, the with the label, but we realised that um, there was always there was going to be this difficulty about sleeves, uh, and um, we should work towards kind of trying to resolve that really yeah which uh, th threshold of a dream brought it all into focus that idea well the next album to our children's children's children comes out on your own imprint threshold how did threshold come to be um the threshold was uh, is part of it was part of decca and um Threshold gave us one thing. It gave us control over those sleeves and what was to be released. And um, that was our idea of, uh, yes, just getting control over that stuff. And Decca were quite happy that we had that. It, was, it changed the royalty status. Our royalty was getting a little better every time. So... Um, that they could afford to do that and have a negotiation with us about that. And then we would be responsible for the sleeves. And actually, I don't think, um, what, which, which album was it after Threshold? It was um, Children's Children, was it? Correct. So I don't think it was a gatefold. I don't think there was a lyrics. Or maybe there was inside. It was an insert that went into the, the double gatefold. Because um, what? We love sleeves, and I I love sleeves. It's just absolutely great uh, that that whole thing about making sleeves. I enjoyed every moment of that. So uh, I think it was to, to do with get, trying to get give us control threshold, which it which it did do. It gave us control over the sleeves and what we could do within a, a royalty, and it was an agreement that we would take care of that. But also acts were signed to Threshold. The one that got mm -hmm. the most traction in America was Trapeze. Mm -hmm. uh, who was in charge of that and how interested in that were you? Uh, you mean the business of it? 
Uh, well, yes, the, the business of saying, let's build our own little empire here. We'll sign acts. We'll make them a hit. Which acts to sign? Was that something you were interested in or somebody else did that? So you that, yeah, that's an assumption that we're going to build our own little empire here. Uh, I, I don't think anybody thought that. Um, I think it was just a question of, listen, Decker are going to give us some studio time. What they had was studio time, fantastic studios. And they were going to give us studio time. So let's, we knew lots of musicians around London uh, and, and around England that we thought really should be making it. And so it was our chance to record those albums, uh, those those people. Um, there was a young boy that I knew that I'd seen at a party because it's the days when you just went to other people's apartments with your records and stuff. And I'd seen Timon sitting in a corner, this boy called Timon, T-I-M-O-N. And uh, he's such a lovely player and such, such a lovely voice. And you think, hey, studio time. Let's, uh, let's just record it, you know, and... Uh, so I think that was a lot of the stuff with Threshold. It was we were just enjoying the fact that we had studio time. We could call up upon an engineer to record this these things, and um, that's as far as it went. I, I'm not sure there was any empire building ideas there, but um, it was an it was a nice idea. It was a nice idea to that to bring other musicians in. And what was the genesis of to our children's children's children? First, um, who came up who came up with the name? Um, I think that a couple of these things are curiously enough, I think from the Bible, as a matter of fact. I think children's children might even be there's um a, a verse in the uh, in in the Bible. I don't know whether it's to our children's children's children, but it might be. Keys of the kingdom certainly is with um Peter, I think, but uh, who our Lord gave the keys of the kingdom to. But um, so uh, the 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 idea of to our children's children was really from uh, Tony Clark, our producer. It was an album that he really wanted to make, and um, yes, and that that was that was his thing, and. Uh, Outer space, moon rockets, that kind of stuff. Uh, t- Tony Tony Clark was such a wonderful combination with us. Uh, star producer from Decca, and then became our friend and one of the kind of inner circle. But this was always uh, I would sometimes be asked up into the control room and he and he'd describe what he wanted out of a, a track say that me or one of the boys had had written and he would describe it like so justin what what i wanted you you could see the sun coming up in the morning and as the sun rises behind you there's the the, the the a cool wind is is blowing across the grass but in front of you you can see some trees and the the clouds are parting as the sun rises and there's the most gentle kind of touch on your face and that's how it's and he'd describe it in these wonderful cinematic terms and then i'd go down the steps from the control room and the other guys would say what what did he say and i said e a and uh, (laughs) c sharp minor oh yeah right great i'm good 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, one of the songs on that album is I Never Thought I'd Live to Be 100. And when you're in your when you're in twenties, hundreds is far off. Now people live to a hundred. Do you still sing that song? And what do you think about it with a different viewpoint from this so close to the number? I haven't I haven't even heard that song mentioned for fifty years. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a cute little song. I think I did it. Um, I think it appears twice on the album. I, I know that Tony always liked. It. I don't think there's anything on it except a um, bit of guitar. And some echo chamber. I, I don't have any feelings about it. It's just a, an interesting um, idea about somebody, something shooting through space. I never thought I'd live to be a million. So you have three albums in a row that become more and more successful commercially, but there's not a hit single on any of them. Was everything going along swimmingly in the band or was there a thought that we need to be bigger or want to be bigger? 
No, I, I, I wish I could tell you that there was some kind of plan and some kind of proposal, but um, I, don't, I don't think so. I think those kind of plans and proposals always came from outside of the group. Uh, but um, like, fortunately, with the album that we're probably that you're clearly leading to is called "Question of Balance." Then, um, right, I had I had a song called, called "Question" that was recorded quite some time before the album, and um, Decca put it out within like a, a two weeks of us recording it, and uh, it was a hit. It was a hit. It was a fantastic song called "Question." And to what degree did the fact that it hit change your life or the band's trajectory? Well, I think it probably I think it probably did change our lives in so much as that it put us on television. And um, the, the the I think the the most memorable time for that for me was we played at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970. <laughs> And it was a festival that the, the security broke down. The fences came down, became a free fenced festival. It was kind of overrun and it got quite alarming. And a lot of groups, uh, somebody jumped on stage when Joni Mitchell was doing her thing and banged the mic into her mouth and her poor Joni, her, like her, her, her lip was bleeding. And the, I remember Richie Havens and I, backstage i knew richie and um then we were talking about you know how how is this kind of thing going to calm down the uh the, the security people had just kind of left and uh, everything it was becoming a, a massive free festival and we the whole we were supposed to go on like at lunchtime and of course like these festivals go everything was late we went on at sunset and we played question which had just become a hit and the whole place went whoomph and everything came down to a calm, serene. It's like, Oh, I love this song and it's great. And every, the whole sort of vibe changed. And, um, it was an interesting time for, with that question. And I think it made a, a big impression here in the, in Europe and in the UK, that, that song. We were only kept off. We only kept off number one, Bob, by the BBC, who had a song out with their football team. I think it was called "Back Home," and it was a BBC record. And they, they had the chart, of course, the BBC, and they kept us off number one. We were always we were number two for a while. And you have this great success. Does it change your everyday life? Um. Well, I don't know. Uh, it change our everyday life that this you remember when i said before that you can have a philosophy of life and when you're going up and down the motorway in a van um with with nothing and you're just living with your girlfriend you, you know that your philosophy of life doesn't mean anything but as soon as you start to have stuff around you then you're you have to kind of live out your philosophy and sometimes that is very different. It's okay when you're in a van for somebody to be this kind of over there on one side of the uh, the, the spectrum philosophically and you on the other. doesn't matter. But when you've got stuff, family and uh, a house and possessions, it kind of matters. So you start to have to live that. And I think that was after that, the early 70s was the time when you could see the um, – 
the difference in lifestyles and priorities and what people in the band really wanted out of their own lives. And what did you want? Oh, um, what did I want? Um, I wanted to continue staying in bed in the morning. <laughs> playing me, playing me guitar. I don't know. Uh, just want to make your way in the world and have pl play music and have people hear it and um, appreciate it. I think that's what I wanted. Okay, in this era especially in England, there are a lot of managers who call the shots. And we hear stories relevant of the money. We hear stories of the manager saying, I booked this tour. You have to get back out there. Were you in control or were you feeling the whip of either the record company or a manager or an agent? No, we never did have a manager or an agent. And, um, uh, we never did have. Uh, we, we had a lovely agent, actually. Uh, no, I tell a lie, called Colin Berlin, who was my agent just before I, I joined the Moody's. And, and um, we didn't have an agent when I jo joined. And I suggested working with Colin. And Colin was absolutely great. Got us some great gigs. And then Colin, Colin's life changed and he sort of stepped aside. And um, we had a good agent in the U.S., and uh, then, but we were playing a lot of big places in the, you know, big arenas in the US. And I think there was occasions when I thought, I wonder who's getting paid for this. You know, you've got like um, 12,000 people in here. And uh, I know how much we're getting. <laughs> so I wonder who's getting paid. And about that time, I suppose about 71. Uh, so it'd be every good boy, I suppose that kind of era, um, we met Jerry Weintraub, a man called Jerry Weintraub, who some people might have heard about. And uh, Jerry came to see us and we wanted to, he had an artist called John Denver and he could see us playing these venues and he wanted to have John Denver open for us because we were always having acoustic artists opening for us. Once we'd become a headliner, we, we didn't want another group setting up in front of our stuff. So acoustic artists would be great. And so Jerry suggested John Denver, and we did. We um, he, he did a tour of the UK with us. But then Jerry really came to us and uh, he pointed out that um, we weren't exactly being paid for this stuff. You know, we were just uh, going through the motions with an agent and who also wasn't getting, he was still, uh, the agent only getting his 10% or whatever it was, 20%. And he had a different idea, a way of touring and a way of looking at the business. And uh, I think that changed things touring-wise for us. And then we became part, I, I always feel that we became part of Jerry Weintraub's movie of his life somehow. Because he's larger than life character, wonderful to be part of it, the movie of his life, as far as I'm concerned. It was absolutely brilliant. And he took us on a wonderful ride and uh, changed things for us. Okay, the Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. There's another hit, Story in the Eyes, written by you once again. So that album, what's the story of the making of that one? Every Good Boy. Um, how did that happen? Um, 
I can remember recording Story in Your Eyes because I just remember the guitar riff and uh, how I'd done, done it at, at home and and uh, and then put the basic acoustic track down with with John and Graham and Mike on tambourine and then put my 335 on top of it. But I honestly don't remember much about the rest of the album. Um you, you 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 must know that I don't I know I you you know I I say this I know I was there in the sixties early seventies but my mind was elsewhere chemically mystically and emotionally so I can't say that I have complete I have re, complete recall of some flashbacks of some rather strange things but I I can't remember certain details but I'm giving you I'm doing my best to give you an overview. Well, I think you're doing quite a fine job. Then we have the seventh sojourn, which actually has two hits. Uh, one isn't life strange. You were one of the singers on that, but John Lodge wrote that. And I'm just a singer in a rock and roll band. You'd been on quite a ride at this point. Was the band starting to run a bit on fumes and get tired or were things as strong as they'd always been? Um, well, it goes back to this kind of philosophy of life, I think. I'm sorry to bang on about that, but that's a fact. And then it, it, there were it, people were moving so far apart in the way they lived their lives and they wanted to, that I could see that it was kind of turning into a, a mist somehow. Uh, there was a sort of fog that had descended and sometimes i could see someone through that fog and sometimes i couldn't in in the in the band metaphorically i don't mean literally but um i could see that it was not fragmenting but i i knew that um it wasn't a happy time it wasn't a happy time i think we made some i think mike did a song I think it was called Lost in a Lost World that was I thought was so beautiful. And I I had a song called New Horizons that I know that we would, uh, as a group, we would sit and listen to and, and think, oh, that's nice kind of thing. You know, there was a a, a beauty about it and um, that, that there were some really nice things. And, 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 and isn't life strange? And, and it was the, the way that these things were recorded. And there was this fog that had descended between us. And we, the, it was the, you could only reach out to someone occasionally and, and, uh, and, and pull them in and into focus. And then uh, I, I could see it slipping away. Mike didn't want to do it anymore. I think that was the sort of point of it. And Tony Clark and I started to actually record another album after um, Seventh Sojourn. And uh, there was a phone call from down in the canteen and Tony and I were in the control room. I was allowed in the control room by this time. And um, one of the roadies said, here, you know, um, the other boys want to see you and Tony downstairs. So I came downstairs and the other guys were sitting there and they they said we don't want to continue with this, and I mean I don't mean the band. It just didn't want to continue with being together, kind of thing, or uh, doing this. And so we just drifted apart. So it wasn't a ha that what some sojourn wasn't a happy time for me. 
it was a very kind of sad, uh, melancholy kind of time. So how did you feel in the canteen when they told you that? Hey, I'm the guy who always had songs ready to go in the studio, remember? So I'd, I'd got stuff kind of ready to do. I, I, I was good. And um, I, I was surprised. I can't say that I wasn't surprised, but um, totally. But I, for this uh, to be pulled up that, sh- that uh, short, uh, I was surprised at that moment. And uh, yeah, it was kind of shocking, really. Yeah. And how do you end up working with John Lodge on Blue Jays? Well, I think what what happened was that we we had a big tour that we were to do and uh, with Jerry Ronchub as well, a, a world tour. So we continued to do that. I knew that Mike was unhappy. It was quite clear. And um, so we... Mike and I talked about doing something together and uh, we talked about it for a few years. Wouldn't it be nice, like a side project, we'd do it together. And um, at the end of the Japanese tour, or at the end of, yes, we went to Japan. I flew back. We might have played in Hawaii. And I came back to LA with nothing happening. There was nothing in the diary at all. And I was going around to see Mike had, had remarried and was living or had he remarried I don't know but he was uh, uh, maybe not but he was married to an American girl and um, in California I think he was over in Studio City somewhere the other side of the hill you know how it you know you go up to Mulholland you come absolutely down the other side. yeah I'm not that you, far from that right now <laughs> no it's very nice you go down into Studio City there's some really nice stuff down there Mike was living down there with his wife and um, we were talking, just talking about kind of things, how it would be, you know, how it would be. And then Mike, I think Mike at that same time, he got another property out, um, out of LA somewhere a bit more kind of hippie ish. And uh, I, I was just hanging out with him and we were, were starting to make plans for an album because uh, there was nothing else happening. The next thing I so the next thing I know, John and Tony Clark turned up and uh, suggested the idea that the four of us should do something. I I didn't really want to do that, and I know Mike called me into the kitchen and he said, "Listen, I'm out now. I don't want to do that." And um, I, I thought, "Oh, okay then." And then. So um, I think we went for like a coffee with the, me and, and John and, and Tony Clark. And we thought, well, let's do that instead. You know, let's go let's go home. And, um, and we did that. No plan, Bob. No plan. These things just happen. I hear that. And then how does the group get back together? So we did Blue Jays. That was nice. Blue Guitar was very nice. I'd already recorded that with 10CC. The guy, that was a nice, that was a nice time. Then um, Weintraub pulled the back, band back together to do a compilation album. We'd never done a kind of greatest hits. And um, Jerry was talking with the label about a greatest hits. And while he was... Uh, discussing this greatest hits which we'd never done we'd always kind of resisted and uh, then um the idea came back up for i think i think me and john and ray 
were sitting around just, uh, you know, because everybody, the, the, the people in England were still friends. And um, that where everybody was still friends. There's no, nothing was said that couldn't be unsaid. Nothing was said that couldn't be unsaid. You know, sometimes things can't be unsaid. But um, so I think we thought, uh, well, maybe why don't we do it? Jerry was like, yeah, you, you guys, why don't you get an album? Yeah, why don't you get back to it? Why don't you do this album? So we did. We went. Um, we, we talked about it. Mike didn't want to leave America. So we thought, oh, okay, well, Los Angeles was quite nice. So we all piled over to Los Angeles and started recording the Octave album at the um, record plant in um, on Wilshire, I think it was. We recorded quite a bit of that. It wasn't a ha happy sort of time, uh, really. Um, some of the guys rented houses there. I didn't. Uh, I was kind of commuting, which was quite difficult between here and Los Angeles. Oh, this is mildly interesting. F flights used to take much much quicker Los Angeles to London in the 70s. You know that? They used to go faster, the planes. You could do it in eight hours, which was fantastic. Takes you about 13 now. But um, so, uh, I'm sorry, Bob. Uh, th so, yeah, so we were m making the album and uh, in at Mike's studio, actually, up in Coral Canyon. And um, then we were there when there was that terrible mudslide. Do you remember that when the rains came down, 77, yeah. I think it was that, yeah. that winter and all the rains. And I'm, I'm sorry, but they, those big most, those big cars and maybe LA drivers don't quite know how to drive in the mud. They're not like English people who drive in the mud all the time. But um, so there was a lot of cars whizzing around on the Pacific Coast Highway, which was, I was going up there every day. And uh, um, I could see that this album wasn't really working either. Tony Clark wasn't, there was things happening in his personal life. And he's such a lovely man, but things were happening, changes in his personal life. Mike clearly didn't want to do it. And so uh, I think there was a moment when it came apart then during the Octave album, but at least we had the album. The Day We Meet Again and um, stuff from that album. And uh, But we th then we carried on. I think we carried on because the rest of us wanted to and Mike didn't. Mike stayed there. So the rest of us came home and uh, moved on. So... You talk about eight hours. Were you taking the SST, the Concord? I did take the Concord a couple of times, but the Concord wasn't Concord. Well, it wasn't called the Concord. It was called Concord. But Concord was was going. Um, well, I don't believe it ever went to Los Angeles. I would cut. I took it a few times from Washington or New York and Toronto, and I, I, I once I took it to Dallas. But but you could you'd have fly subsonic over America. But um, no, I was just doing like a 707 from Los Angeles to London. They could do it real quick. They really put the pedal to the metal. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made, and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. 
We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was it like creating and releasing the Moody Blues sound when the world was changing, the late 70s, we had punk and disco. Uh, then into the early 80s, we have the new wave sound. We have MTV. Did you say this is what we're doing? Or did you feel a little like a fish out of water? Or did you want to change the sound? Um, well, I don't. Th- we were kind of came through that sort of unscathed, I think because um, nobody kind of pointed the finger at us and said, hey, it's over for you guys, because we'd always gone our own way. We were never, like I said before, we were never kind of chasing a hit. We, we were never really fashionable. So we couldn't really be out of fashion. We were um, just travelling our own road and doing our own thing. And uh, luckily enough, when the, um, when I think it was um, Deutsche, I think it was, uh, not Deutsche Grandin, what were they called before? They bought the Decca catalogue in like 1980 or 1981. So Edward was still there and they uh, were still alive. But um, there was the, 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 the record company was refreshed in America. And that's when we had a chance to um, 
they supported us going back in the studio in the UK and making um, Long Distance Voyager. Yeah. And uh, I think that, that album really set us up for the 80s and what was to come. So do you have a relationship with Mike Pinder today? Yes. So there was... With his family. There was no discord over the his leaving the band. Not with me. No. I, I've always been loving good vibes all, all around, Bob. You know, I just... I make it. I make a point of, of trying to get my own way by um, being um, being gentle and persuasive about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, saw Mike at the the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when we were inducted. It was a lovely time. And what was it like having Ray Thomas and Graham Edge pass? Oh. Well, Ray had left the group quite a long time before he died. And so that was, his life was kind of separate outside the Moody's anyway. And he he, he didn't want, want to go on. I knew he was uncomfortable on the road and um, in the studio. <clears throat> um, so that was that. Ray, Ray had left it anyway. And I... I loved him. We, we always had such laughs, you know. There was that's the thing about the Moody's that I, I should mention that I I started laughing in in August nineteen sixty six, and I never stopped. It was funny all the way, but um, it, 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 inappropriate and irreverent sometimes, but always funny. So, uh, but but Graham uh, Graham's passing really uh, kind of hit me earlier this year, yeah, because Gra- Graham loved the group so much he was the center he was the thing that held the group together well when ray had left and there was the core three people you continued to tour as the moody blues uh there's no chance you will continue to tour with john lodge under that name i don't i don't know is the honest answer sometimes okay. i just have to say i don't know is it sometimes it, i don't know is a good answer well, sometimes people are against it. That's uh, the, but I have your answer there. So at this time in your seventies, some people might say you you talked about wanting to sleep in the morning in your own bed. Um, some people <laughs> no, not might in my say, own bed. "Hey, I don't like my own bed. Right. I don't care which bed it is. It doesn't have to be in my, okay. my own bed. I, that's uh, musicians just want to stay in bed anywhere." So. What's the what's the motivation to still go on the road? To to uh, share the the music, you know. I'm a musician, man. I'm, I'm a musician, so uh, I just want to play music. I want to do a do a gig. I love that little bit of magic that can happen in a room. It's as simple as that. You know, the arc of a uh, musical career is that now, today, in today's internet world, specific records don't have the impact either commercially or in mindshare, and audiences are smaller. Therefore, some people don't even record new music, and they're depressed about it. What do you think about the modern environment vis-a-vis your career? Vis-a-vis my career? Well, I'm not depressed about it. I can I, I can still um, I can still pop down to Genoa and do and do something. I don't, I don't have to employ a, a great number of musicians to do it because I can pretty much do it myself. But when me and Alberto can do it between us, 
uh, I play the stuff and um, Alberto plays and, um, he, he, you know, we, we've got all the tools that we need. I've got my old, I've got my old DX7, my Jupiter 8, which is fantastic. I've got my guitars. I've got a time code <laughs> and that's about it really. And um, that's why, you know, we come back to living for love and um, there's almost nothing on that record, but it's, for me, it's just so beautiful. It's so it's so simple and so beautiful, and so I I'm just fine with how it is. And I, I I really feel for the young kids with the pressure that they're under now in this business to try and become a commodity or a personality and to try and um, promote yourself in that way. And uh, I I think for. for, for for me, I'm so lucky where it's just I, I don't I don't want to be a celebrity. I never I never was wanted that or anything like that. Just want to play some some music, and uh, that's what that that's I said at the beginning. My goal is to I want to be true to my goal of playing music and recording music and playing live. That's what I want. How close are you to John Lodge these days? I think everybody, uh, we're all connected. That so that the three of us, Mike and John and myself, are connected by just such a wonderful uh, catalog and legacy of things. Uh, so, which is always nice. So, I said before that, that not, not nothing with with Mike or, or with any with John or Graham or Ray. Nothing was said that couldn't be unsaid, which is always very nice. It's I, it's not a brotherhood because I had a brother and I know what that's like. But it's a it, being in a group is a very different um, dynamic. You were married at a relatively young age, and your marriage sustained, which is not the case with many music marriages. What was the key to having your marriage sustain? I'm away a lot. <laughs> Bada bing, we leave it at that or any more insight? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, okay. Hey, man, yeah. And what about your kids? What are your kids up to? Um, well, they have a lovely life. My daughter lives in West Cornwall, which is the most beautiful part of England for me. And um, she's a, um, a sacrocranial osteopathist, which is gentle kind of manipulation of the spine it's very beautiful it it um did great things for her when she had some problems and so and i've got a grandson who is beautiful and 14 and um gets taller every uh, every other week you know he's different and uh, i've gotten uh, you know my sister i'm very close and he has just got a lot of uh, i'm so it's so wonderful to have so many nice friends and gentle and not have a a pressure to do anything uh, outside of that and um yeah i'm very lucky to have a wonderful crew in, that I tour with, my guitar tech, Steve Chant, my production manager, he and I've been together a long time. And um, Mike Dawes, the guitar player that I work with now, genius, genius young man. Um, Carmen Gould on flute and Julie Reagans, who's the most gorgeous, has the voice of an angel and is the most brilliant musician I've ever 
had the pleasure to be in the company of. So um, these are the people that we love. And the Moody sound was unique, but certainly Jerry Weintraub managed other acts. Do you have relationships with your contemporaries in the music business, or were the Moody's sort of a self-contained unit aside from uh, the other acts? Well, if you, you might remember that we talked earlier about you were quite interested about the, how you get how I got my D twenty eight because because there was a, 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 a lot of acquaintances in the music business. We we have acquaintances, don't we? People say, "Well, do you know somebody?" It's like, "Well, I'm an acquaintance of theirs, but I'm not sure that I would say that I know somebody." So I've got a lot of acquaintances in the music. Of course, and the music business is one of those things. If you're a musician people uh, you go to events or something like that and i'm often asked to often asked to play turn up and play nights which people love and um you know it's in their in their hearts a kind of thing and um and if people hey justin that that other artists that I, d I don't know and i'm not acquainted with but you can come up and say hey justin i'll say hey noel how are you doing love it and uh, that's the kind of thing it is that's the wonderful thing about musicians and the music business so uh, yes i'm familiar with quite a lot of people i have a lot of acquaintances and are you one of those people who thinks about legacy and being remembered, or are you more of the type of person who says, I'm doing this now, I'm going to die at some time, there's no afterlife, I live my life, that's it? Is, is that a choice? Have I got to be one of those? Got to be either one or the well, other? Well, no, it doesn't have to be a, a choice. It can be both. It can be like, hey, I want to live my life having a good time, but I want my songs to live on. I want them to pay dividends for my family. I want them to bring joy to people of further generations. What I know is that I'll never get tired of playing um the, the Everly Brothers, I'll never get tired of playing Buddy Holly. I'll never get tired of playing Buffalo Springfield or Cliff in the Shadows or the Beatles um, or Elvis or, uh, or, or Steely Dan or, or anything. So, um, or uh, Shostakovich or, uh, you know, Rene Fleming. I'll never get tired of it. So, the, it, it doesn't the personal thing about them i'm not really bound up in i'm not really bound up about them as people and i and i understand that's what music is that there's there's music there and that will be your it will be or or not to be there's nothing i can do to make that or get worried about that whether that's a legacy or, or not I, I i i'll always love certain pieces of music and they'll live forever with other people as well because that, that that's the way i feel so i'm not bound up in thinking about legacy or trying to make anything happen there is is there a way to make things happen there I don't know. <laughs> now less than ever but uh you just got off of a tour at the end of the summer i know you're doing this cruise coming up at the beginning of the year what are your plans for live work in the future? Well, I'm offered stuff 
that's for sure. Um, I had a, I had the best tour I've ever had in the UK. So I did three things this year already. I did the American tour, interrupted by uh, circumstances, but then um, we had a great tour, very successful, and all the places are asking us back, so that's nice. Um, I did the War of the Worlds tour, which was fantastic. Holograms, giant screens, explosions, Martians. It was just, and Forever Autumn, which has been the most wonderful gift to me around the world. Um, So uh, I'm offered stuff, and I think I'm going to say yes. Well, Justin, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I got to tell you, I was anxious about talking to you because, you know, you hear songs on the radio. Yeah, I know that song that's iconic, but the Moody's are a thing unto itself, you know, and it's uh, it's got a special aura, certainly for me and I know for others. So I want to thank you for talking to me from, you know, the Cote d'Azur, however you pronounce it. My French is not good. So thanks again, Justin. You're welcome. Till next time, this is Bob Left Sets. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.